Welcome to Season 4 of 76 West, a podcast of the Marlene Meyerson JCC Manhattan, featuring talks from the JCC's Conversation Series, a marquee program of the Lambert Center for Arts and Ideas. This podcast is brought to you by Zabars and Zabars.com. We open the season with a discussion from January 2013 between one of America's most admired authors, Malcolm Gladwell, and author and former 60 Minutes producer, Abigail Pogrebin. Gladwell is the author of five New York Times bestsellers, The Tipping Point, Blink, Outliers, What the Dog Saw, and David and Goliath. He has been included in the Time 100 Most Influential People list and touted as one of foreign policy's top global thinkers. In this podcast, Gladwell discusses David and Goliath and how he created such a singular journalistic niche. This conversation was recorded before a live audience. Hello, everyone. Thank you for coming. Hello, Malcolm. When I told someone that I was interviewing you, literally, I think 10 people always said the same sentence, oh my god, I love him. And that's, I think that's curious in a way. They're not, they're saying I love him, you know? And I think if this were a Malcolm Gladwell piece, we would look at what, what is that love? Like what, if you can be immodest for a minute or even just dissect it, why, what is the celebrity about? Because it's really, it's really kind of profound at this point that anything you write is gonna be a bestseller, mm-hmm. that, that people kind of wanna find whatever you're writing. And most people don't read every piece that someone writes. They, they care about the subject matter. With you, if you're writing about it, they know it'll be interesting. So if you can just address your celebrity for a minute. Dear. Um, I don't, you know, I'm as baffled by this as, as anyone else. To the extent, I, first of all, I think you're exaggerating. Um, Am I exaggerating? Um, <laughs> but uh, even if you, to the extent that you are not, um, I... I don't know. I don't really, I don't understand it. I mean, I think that I, um, a friend of mine who, um, and this is true, this is a statement that is more true before I got my haircut as I did last week, um, <laughs> said that all that really matters in these, in these instances is if your profile is recognizably you. So he said, think of Mickey Mouse, think of Homer Simpson. And he said, you just, re- you just have a recognizable profile. Like in black and white, you know, the silhouette, people know, they look at the silhouette and they'll know it's you. Um, that's the most, if we were to use um, Occam's razor, is it Occam or Occam's, Occam's Don't razor? Don't ask me that. Occam's razor, somebody knows. If we were to go for the simplest explanation, that would be it, I am recognizable in silhouette. Um, the, <laughs> the other thing is that I, my, um, if I, you said I could be immodest, I, my writing is very nice. Meaning? I'm nice to people. I don't, I rarely, I don't, never, but I rarely write things. I'm not interested in writing, spending a lot of time with people who I don't like. So I tend to write about people who I like and to write about the thing about them that's interesting. Um, you know, it's interesting about, on this very topic, I was thinking the other day, why is it that I like Dwight Garner's book reviews in the New York Times so much? So he comes along and he's this breath of extraordinary fresh air. And I think about, because after years of being so, I mean, I hope I'm not rough, I'm not hurting anyone's feelings, but after being so disappointed by the Daily Reviewers and the Times, he comes along and I love reading him. And I realize what it is, is in every book that he reads, he looks for the part 
That's interesting, right? And you know, even when he's given something a complete rave, you know in the back of your mind that what he's done is he sidestepped the things that he wasn't terribly crazy about and has chosen instead to celebrate that part of it that appeals to him on some, which I think is the appropriate critical response. And if you do that on a consistent basis, people will love you. Like I love Dwight, I never met Dwight Garner. I love Dwight Garner. Yeah, I do he too. just strikes me as a guy, I wanna have dinner with him and I wanna yeah. talk to him about books. It's that quality and I think very, and I've always, not always successfully, but I've always tried to do that in my writing to find. Well, you raised that, I think you were quoted in a couple places as saying that you, you have to trust or find the most interesting part of a story. And people are always asking how you come up with your ideas. Is that radar in your gut? I mean, how do you know what will be interesting or where, what guides you in terms of finding a story? Um, well, most things are interesting. Um, the, in fact, almost anyone. So I firmly believe that if you sit down and you talk to almost anyone for long enough, you can find something that's interesting. That person, the person who you're talking to, will not always know that what they're saying is interesting. One of the things that happens to us as individuals is that we completely lose track about what's interesting about us. In fact, usually what someone thinks is interesting about them is not what's interesting about them. Um, but if, but almost everyone has some, and I was thought about this the other day because I was having this conversation, and sadly I can't tell you his name, with some Hollywood muckety-muck, who is famous as being the most brilliant and ruthless and relentless negotiator of all time, right? Not of all time, but up there. He's the guy who makes the deal happen and no one, everyone ends up buckling under his, the power of his personality. So he's a really interesting person. So I'm talking to him, grew up in New York. He, um, on the, actually on the West Side. Um, and his, his parents didn't raise, he was tell, I got interested, I was asking about his family. And his parents didn't, I didn't grow up with his parents, he grew up with his grandparents. And he spent a lot of time as a little kid with his grandfather. And his grandfather was in the button business. And he used to go down to the garment center and he would sit in his grandfather's office and listening to his father, grandfather do business. And he said, well, the thing about the button business is that the margins are really, really tiny. And so it really matters whether you pay five cents as opposed to six cents for the button. So he said, as a kid, I would sit in my grandfather's office for hours on end and listen to my grandfather basically scream at his suppliers to, get, to go from six to five cents, right? At which point I said, oh my goodness, of course you're this, you know, ruthless bargainer in Hollywood. You learned it at the feet of a master. And he looked at me like I had said the moon was made of green cheese. It had never occurred to him that there was a connection between his grandfather and his own skill is like, that's exactly, that's so typical of, it's an incredibly interesting fact about this person that he was formed by sitting as a little kid in his, but it never, he never put that together. And I think that's, we don't do that. You know, that's why third parties, journalists have such an incredible opportunities because the outsider, like the therapist, you know, the outsider has an opportunity to see connections that the person does not. It struck me that you said you actually don't mind getting stuck with someone on a plane because you think there might be a story in it somewhere where most of us, including me, all my body language is don't talk to me. So are you constantly saying it could come from anywhere or are there times where you're like, please don't, 
please don't give me a story. Oh, no, right Mo, I'm, I'm most of the time saying, please don't talk to me. I, I'm not very social. Um, when I'm in, but there are certain things that I, there are certain moments when I think there's an opportunity to find something out. Or um, you, like I was, there's something, I don't, there's, and I think this is true, I think any, I think all of us feel this way. You can always tell if someone's super interesting, can't you? Like, I was at this, it's a long story why I was there, but I was in Zambia recently, and I was at some party in Zambia. There was this very tall guy, um, and I was like, he just seemed interesting. So I went and started talking with him, and he turns out to have been this guy who wrote, he's an American, and he was in the, he served in Vietnam in the intelligence Corps, Army Intelligence. And he turns out to have written this self-published memoir about his time in Vietnam, which he told me about, and that I then ordered uh, when I got home. And I just read it today. And it's totally fabulous. And I, I knew it was just full of all this random stuff about he, when he was in Vietnam, he wrote this report on the bombing in 65 of the bombing of South Viet Vietnamese villages um, by the Air Force. And they wanted to know whether the bombing was working and he was charged with finding that out. And of course, he, his whole point was, well, you, we don't know, because, you know, or to the extent that we do know, it seems to be doing nothing at all, but no one wanted to hear that, and so the report gets buried. But his sort of, this detailed description of what was actually happening on the ground in South Vietnam, it's just, it's both heartbreaking and fascinating and hilarious all at once, right? Um, and you just knew it, and I looked at this guy, this sort of tall, geeky guy in the middle of Zambia, um, he had his granddaughter with him. And it was just like, you just knew. I was so drawn to him. You know, something was going to come from this guy if he just sort of hung on his every word for long enough. You said you weren't social, but you, you write outside. You don't write home a lot. Am I right that you go to cafes, coffee shops? Is that... That is true. Why, yes. why, why is that your preferred... <laughs> because I started in a newspaper. My first... My journalism began at the Washington Post, my career in journalism. And I learned to write in a big, crowded, noisy room. And now I can only write in big, loud, noisy rooms. And I used to go to the New Yorker, but of course the New Yorker is like a tomb. And so I've stopped going in. I was like, I would fall asleep. I don't know what to do. Like you have the door. They showed me an office. When I got to the New Yorker, they gave me an office with this big, heavy door that, you know, and the people on either side of me were like 90 years old and it didn't make any noise. And I was like, what am I, are you, you know, are you, is this a, it was a mausoleum, it wasn't an office. And so I stopped going in and then, and I heard now, you, you, you have an aversion to Midtown, I understand. I mean. Well, I have an aversion to Times Square, like to the, to the Condé Nast building in Times Square. It's preposterous. This, and now they're moving down to the, the Freedom Tower, or as I like to call it, the Freedom from Market Forces Tower, since it was built with taxpayer money for no particular purpose. But um, uh, so you go to cafes. It's like, why, it's like, why are they moving? I mean, you know, the only reason I can come up with why they wanted Kanye West down there was that, of course, it's the heart of Wall Street, and you know, as we all know, there's a there aren't a lot of women on Wall Street, right? So, if you can imagine the kind of bigwigs of Wall Street gathering at night and saying. Our problem is there's just no women anywhere to be found. Where can we get women? Condé Nast. So they, they offer Condé Nast some sweetheart deal to bring thousands of eligible women down to the Wall Street area. You know, maybe they're hoping to sort of win the undying loyalty of their employees because they solve this crucial social problem. But 
unless it was an act of this kind of extraordinary social engineering, I can find no justification for this, for why they'd want to be there. But before we leave your writing habits, because I think yeah. it just interests people, so how does your day work? Do you get up early and go to the coffee shop, or do you take a, a run, or um, you, I, are you talking to your editor every no, day? No, no, I don't, I don't really talk to my editor much. Uh, I... Well, I've been working on my this book, David and Goliath, for the last two years. So, um, uh, I was doing reporting a lot, or was going to the Bob's Library, um, uh, or I was. Um, I sometimes I go to the coffee shop in the morning and kind of noodle around. You know, you only have to work a couple of hours a day if you're. I mean, if you're right, like you can't write for longer than a few hours, or you just run. I think you run out of steam. So. Um, you know, if I can do a few hours in the morning and then I'll, the rest of the day is just stuff, like arranging, yeah, you know, how much arranging there is in writing and getting people on the phone. And when you're writing this new book, is there, is it sometimes paralyzing or pressuring to know that it will be a bestseller? I mean, you're right. Most people don't write a book knowing it's going to be on the bestseller list and that has to be as good as it is also a, a huge burden in a certain way. Level. I don't think of it as a burden. I think it is the opposite. I think the burden would be if no one had read my four previous books. And um, that's a burden. Um, I think of it as being people have kind of let you into their house, right? Um, and so the pressure's off. You know, people are, have demonstrated a willingness to listen to me ramble on. I mean, that's sort of... Uh, so I, don't, I, I think in many ways, the, each successive book has gotten in one sense, easier or more fun to write because the, it, doesn't, it doesn't feel like there's much, as much pressure as, as there was in the very beginning. Um, so can you tell us about the new book? Because obviously- Yeah, it's, um, it's, I'm at that stage where it's very hard for me to describe it simply. I don't have a kind of, but the, the thing that got me interested, or this is, this, this is the best way to describe it conceptually. The story of David and Goliath, my book's called David and Goliath, is um, problematic. And it's problematic because um, if you talk, so at a certain point early on, I started talking, calling up all these historians of medieval um, warfare and all these books on medieval warfare. I'm not medieval, I'm sorry, uh, anti uh, uh, antiquity. Um, and what they will tell you is that uh, in the armies of antiquity, there were three classes of warriors, there were, uh, there was cavalry, people in chariots or on horseback with um, lances and there was infantry, people with heavy armor, swords and shields, helmets. And there was projectile warriors, so bowmen um, and slingers. And the sling, you know, is this long thing, two long leather ropes with a pouch on the end and uh, a rock in the pouch. And you swing it around like this, and then you release one end of the rope, and the, the projectile fires, for, goes forward at, a speed, so at speeds of upward of 160, 170 miles an hour. Um, a big rock, um, and an experienced slinger can uh, hit a target with devastating accuracy at a distance of 200 or even 300 yards. In fact, there are repeated references in the Bible to um, slingers being able to 
you know, hit someone within a hair's breadth of accuracy. And in several major conflicts in antiquity, slingers are the difference between success and failure for the army. So the basic way these three types work is it's like rock, paper, scissors. Cavalry can defeat slingers. Slingers can defeat infantry, and infantry can defeat cavalry, right? They all hold each other in check. David meets Goliath on the, on the plains of Elah, wherever it is, above Jerusalem. Goliath is, caval is um, infantry. David is a slinger, right? There's no cavalry around. In any conflict between slinger and infantry, slinger wins. David is the favorite. Anyone who would look at the two of them would say it's over, David wins. And in fact, the moment Goliath realizes that David has broken the rule of the engagement, he's not gonna engage in single combat, sword to sword, he's gonna come at him with his sling, Goliath knows it's over. He's like, I'm, he's, it's, he's, it's, right? So why have we told this story for 3,000 years wrong, right? Why are we pretending David is some, it's some miraculous victory? How did he do it? No, no, no. Everyone who was a slinger and was any good beat infantry. Like, huge battles were decided by slingers destroying infantry. They're helpless. You can barely move your way down by armor. You're six foot, you know, you're seven cubits, whoever the hell Goliath was. He's clumping along like this, right? David comes at him with a sling and goes boom, right? And if he misses him the first time, he unloads and goes at him again with a rock coming out at him at 160 miles an hour, right? And Goliath can't get out of the way. It's over. Anyway, so <laughs> once you read this, in fact, it's a really wonderful book by a guy named um, uh, Baruch Halpern, who I think he's at Penn, he's a historian, when he writes about David and Goliath, and it's just like, just points out, it's preposterous. Like, you know, this, the whole mythology about that story is just completely backwards. So I think that's fascinating because I think, um, it suggests to me that there is something fundamentally amiss with the way we understand advantage and disadvantage in any kind of conflict or contest. So what the book does is it goes through and talks about, okay, if that's the case, what do we get wrong about disadvantage and what do we get wrong about advantage? What are, the, what are cases of advantages that are actually disadvantages and what are cases of disadvantages that are actually advantages? Um, so once you frame it that way, you know, you can go in a million different directions. Um, can you give one example? Uh, a contemporary one? Sure. Uh, I'll give one of each. Um, uh, what's the most... Uh, I have a whole anti-Ivy League rant. Um, now, those of you who are familiar with my writing know that I return to this subject obsessively to the point where it's clear that I have a major psychological issue with the Ivy League, possibly because I didn't go. And I have a, do I have a chip on my shoulder? Of course I do. Um, but I discovered that it's, I think this is a, I think that many Americans who did not go to, by the way, the majority of Americans did not go to Ivy League schools. If there was ever a strategy that would have clear commercial upside, it is this. This is a, if ever there was a bias that was gonna pay off big time, this, you know. Um, the contrary, to go around saying the Ivy League is the greatest thing in the world, is there's just no upside to that. I mean, five people, you know, the Supreme Court's gonna like you, and the last three occupants of the White House are gonna like you, and the editorial board of the New York Times will like you, but then you're done, right? <laughs> um, I have the, I regard, my, my strategy is far more. Um, anyway, so, 
The issue is, is there such a thing as a school that is too good? Um, and the answer is, yeah. Um, too good. Well, so I was interested in um, this idea of what's called, uh, and I'm not going to, if I, of course, explain this too thoroughly, no one will no be, we'll buy it. No one will buy it. So no. I'm going to go easy on my explanation. But I'm interested in this notion of relative deprivation, which is, actually, here's, here's how I'll describe it. Um, there was a moment in the 50s, and it, you can find this, uh, this idea is deeply embedded in the thinking of admissions officers of Ivy League schools. But it was articulated most precisely by the head of admissions for Harvard um, in the 1950s, who had what he called the happy bottom quarter. Um, and the happy bottom quarter principle was this, that uh, to be in the bottom quarter of any class um, is a debilitating experience. Even if you are in the greatest class in the world, or actually I should say, especially if you are in the greatest class of the world. So a child who goes to Harvard, the greatest school in the world, and is in the bottom quarter, thinks they're dumb, right? That's not rational, but that is how human beings um, make judgments about their own ability. They don't make global judgments. The kid at the bottom of their class at Harvard does not say, does not look at the entire universe of 21-year-olds and say, I'm actually the 99.99%. No, they say, they look around their immediate surroundings and say, oh my goodness, everyone around me is smarter than I am. I'm an idiot. And what happens to them? They get profoundly discouraged. And if you look at the, uh, at the academic results and career results of people in the bottom of their Harvard class or Yale class, they don't do very well, right? In fact, we have beautiful data on law schools about if you take two identical people with identical academic records, one of whom attends their first choice school and one of whom attends their second choice school, the person who attends their second choice school will outperform the person who attends their first choice school. Why? Because if you're a smart person who goes to a second tier school, you're going to be in the top of your class. And if you're a smart person who goes to your first choice school, there's a chance you'll be in the bottom. And being in the bottom is a terrible place to be. So anyway, the, the, bottom, the happy bottom quarter rule was this problem is so pronounced at elite institutions that Harvard said, listen, we have to come up with some way of ensuring that the people who are in the bottom quarter of our class are the people best equipped to deal with the terrible psychological trauma of being in the bottom quarter. So what was the solution? To let in kids of alumni and athletes, right? <laughs> the children of alumni are, they haven't made. Look, they come from, you know, they went to Dalton. Their father runs a hedge fund. If they, if they feel psychologically debilitated by going to Harvard, they'll be fine, right? <laughs> Daddy will give them a job. It's all going to work out well. And athletes are fine to have at the bottom of the quarter because they have something else to give them self-esteem, right? They have a wholly separate universe where they can succeed, um, which allows them to, which buffers them against the debilitating effects of being at the bottom of their math class. Um, and so that was a kind of, and you know, this wasn't cynical or this was, they were so concerned about this effect that they took steps to, to, so I take this idea very seriously and I say, um, and I look at what happens to people, it's particularly pronounced in the sciences, that um, people in the bottom quarter of their science class, regardless of where they go to school, tend to drop out of science. So. If you want to go into science, you should never go to your first choice school. Anyway, so there's a, that's a, I'm giving a short version of a long thing, which is what it suggests is that our ideas about privilege are very unsophisticated. 
that the notion that you should always seek the most prestigious institution for your child is wrong. Your child is not always best. If they're going to be in the top third of their class, sure, but two-thirds of the people are not in the top third, right? Um, so there you have to be a little it's more... It's very much of a relief to me as a mother, I have to tell you. <laughs> yeah, no, seek mediocrity wherever you can find it. Is okay. the, um, but, and then on the flip side, so that's... And I think that one of the things that um, enfeebles Goliaths is they don't understand the extent to which, at a certain point, privilege becomes self-defeating and the kinds of things that come with power. And I have a whole nother riff about, um, is there such thing as making too much money in terms of your children's well-being, right? And there clearly is. And what I did for there, I just interviewed billionaires and the children of billionaires. It's really interesting. And they're honest? Yeah, they're very honest. And the overwhelming conclusion from that which was that if you care about your children, you should not become very wealthy, right? <laughs> Um, I don't mean that, you're laughing. This isn't funny. I mean, I talk to people who, you know, 65-year-old billionaires who are like, I blew it. I did this for my family, and I look at my kids now, and I realize this is the last thing my children needed. Um, it's to be, it's that whole idea, is it? To be a parent, uh, this part of the book is about U-shaped curves, the phenomenon of the U-shaped curve, which I think is a really interesting one, that things that start out positive. So if you have no money and I give you some money, it, your job as a parent becomes easier. And, and the more money I give you, it gets easier and easier and easier. Then there's a period at the bottom of the curve where it makes no difference. If you make, your job as a parent is not easier if you make 400,000 than if you make 250,000, right? <clears throat> but then the curve turns. When you start getting up into serious money, uh, your job as a parent gets a lot harder. And this is what people who get serious money fail to understand. Um, and they're not, and if I had endless, really fascinating discussions with psychiatrists who work with wealthy parents who will talk on and on and on about how people make that transition into and where their job as a parent gets harder and they are wholly ill-equipped for that transition. And their children suffer. Um, and uh, so that's one. And then a whole other side of the, then that's part two of the book is flipping it. Um, and I talk about things like things that seem to be disadvantages that are in retrospect can be, not always, can be highly advantageous. Why do so many extremely successful people come from unbelievably painful, screwed up childhoods, right? It's, it's more than, it has to be more than a coincidence and it has to be more than, even if it's not a coincidence, it, you, at a certain point, you no longer say they succeeded in spite of their troubled childhood. You have to start to look for reasons, uh, for explanations that say they succeeded because of their troubled childhoods. And I talk about, I do a series of, of case studies of incredibly uh, people, uh, of incredibly important sort of innovators, creators, creative types, entrepreneurs, who had childhoods you would not wish on anyone. Um, and it's so clear that they did what they did as a result, because they were able to successfully navigate some, or even, actually a better way of saying it, partially successfully, because they bear the scars. But what's fascinating, I have a, there's a whole chapter on this guy who, um, who's really the one res man responsible for curing childhood leukemia. 
And it's a really fascinating story. But and there's all kinds of dimensions to it. But at the heart of the cure for childhood leukemia, so if we might, let's just use a psycho psychoanalytic approach, since I'm guessing that's a <laughs> familiar ground here on the Upper West Side. I know when I went to a therapist, I came to the Upper West Side to go to that therapist um, because I felt, you know, it's like going to, you know, Italy for olive oil. You know, why would you, <laughs> why would I go anywhere else if I was going to get a quality experience? 76 West is brought to you by Zabars and Zabars.com. In 1934, Lewis and Lillian Zabar opened a shop along Broadway at 80th Street on New York's Upper West Side. Lewis was a stickler for quality, roasting his own coffee and personally visiting smokehouses to sample and inspect fish, rejecting far more than he accepted. Today, Lewis's principles and practices continue to guide Zabar's. Respect the customer. Never ever stint on quality. Offer fair value. And last but not least, keep searching for the new and wonderful. Be sure to visit Zabar's store at 80th and Broadway or visit zabars.com for mouthwatering specialties like bagels, babka, rugelach, smoked fish, and of course, world famous caviar. Zabar's ships to all 50 United States and Puerto Rico, so there's no reason your friends can't enjoy the fresh, homemade taste of Zabar's any day of the week. My shrink had to be on the Central Park. Well, you know, it's, um, above 72nd Street, I had all these rules. Anyway, um, so if you think about this, uh, the cure for childhood leukemia was es essentially rested, and the reason it took so long for people to conceptualize it, and the reason it was so hard for people to accept it, and the reason that um, even to this day it remains such an incredibly um, awe-inspiring and difficult cure, is that uh, it consisted of taking children as young as a year who were near death and giving them essentially a toxic dose of chemotherapy, not just one drug, but three drugs in combination, bringing them to the brink of death, holding them there for a week, 10 days, until the cancer had been driven almost as low as you could drive it, allowing them to recover, and then doing it over again, and then over again, and then over again, over the course of a year, essentially killing them, or as coming as close as you can, can come to killing someone, as sick as a person can be, and yet we're talking about two-year-olds, two-year-olds, doing it again and again and again and again and again. And, and when they recover, they look like they're cured, right? And then what do you do? Take them back into the hospital and drive them right back down to the brink of death, right? It is psychologically such an unbelievably impossible thing to accept as true that this could be a cure. So basically a group of people led by this one guy say, no, no, this is actually how you cure um, leukemia. And everyone around them says, you're a butcher. This is happening in the 60s. People are remembering the Nazi doctors, right? They're like, you can't do this to children. And he goes, no, no, no. This is how, this is the only way to cure the disease, right? So who is the person who conceives of this as psychologically um, and medically possible. It is someone who's 
own childhood was so appalling, right? Who was essentially himself taken to the brink of psychological death over and over and over again and recovered. So he, for, he could see it. He could say, no, 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 you can recover from this. Right? He knew it on some incredibly profound level because he'd gone through it himself, right? I don't believe that anyone who had had a normal, healthy childhood would ever have accepted that cure as a cure, right? So all of a sudden, we're in, when you think about this, hundreds of thousands of lives have now been saved over the course of the last 40 years because of this notion that was developed in the 1960s by this guy. We all, in one sense, then, all those people owe their lives to the trauma that this guy went through, right? Incredibly, that idea I find so, it's a big theme of the book, because, and then I, there's a parallel story I tell about this town in, uh, it's a little village in the southeastern corner of France, which is the village that takes in thousands of Jews during the Second World War and either hides them or spirits them to safety in Switzerland. While the rest of France, as we all know, is like handing over Jews to the Nazis, going out of their way to help the Nazis round up Jews, right? Story of France is just the most appalling, well-known story of collaboration. And, but one little town of people say, no. In fact, this is an extraordinary story where the Vichy Minister of Youth, right after the, the first and most infamous roundup of uh, Jews in Paris in 1942. 13,000 Jews are rounded up by the French police, you know, basically doing the Nazis' bidding. And right after that, the Vichy Minister of Youth comes to this little town in the middle of nowhere in, in southwestern France to kind of, because they want to set up the equivalent of, not, of Hitler Youth camps in France. And the children of this town confront this guy at the meeting, which is supposed to be this kind of everyone bow down to the minister. And they read him out loud from a letter which says, we just heard about what happened in Paris. We're incredibly concerned you're gonna do this in our town. We'd like to tell you, these are 16 and 17 year olds. We'd like to tell you, A, that we have Jews in our town right now. B, if you try and round them up, they're gonna defy the law. And C, we're gonna hide them. You're not gonna get them. Like, you know, kids saying this to this guy. And this guy's flabbergasted because no one says this. And they, why, do this, why does this little town do this? Well, they're Huguenots. And the Huguenots underwent, at the hands of the French, the most vicious persecution for close to a century in the 17th, in the 17th and 18th century, right? They were hounded. Uh, you know, if they were caught practicing their faith, they were rounded up and the men were sent to the gallows and the women were... Uh, put in prison for 35 years, and the children were sent to convents to be converted to Catholicism. I mean, this went on for decade after decade after decade. And they got so toughened to this, to the point where the people who were left were like, you know, nothing you can do can scare me anymore. So when this happens in the 1941 and 1942, the Jews are like, we've been, been there, done that. Come on over, right? We've, we went through this already. So the, the, the story, this extraordinary story of saving so many thousands of lives emerges out of 100 years of the most dreadful trauma. And that, that's an incredibly difficult and problematic idea to get your mind around. That in the, that in the uh, 
process of persecuting one group, you may down the, we may, as a, as a world, down the road be saving somebody else, right? That there's always, and I, I can't, I, I can't resolve, I haven't resolved that idea. And the book, I sort of leave, the book ends up on this note. I don't know what to do with that fact. I don't, it doesn't justify persecution, of course not. But it just says, I suppose that you can't ultimately win if you're trying to persecute someone. Because even if you manage to wipe out or to make the person in front of you suffer, down the line, someone else is going to, it's going to rebound in the other direction. Because you've taught someone how to deal with that and they can make something good about it. I guess that's the only way I can make sense of it. But it's also, it seems like it's a book about power in many ways. I mean, who who has it and who doesn't, and that you're retracing the steps that, again, as you always do in a counterintuitive way, that the person you think has the power doesn't, won't necessarily win the day. Yeah, that's a lot of what, this self-defeating nature of power is, um, is a very, very kind of persistent theme in this, and it, um, and what I don't understand, and I, ha- I don't explain in the book, is if power is so consistently self-defeating, uh, why don't we take that into account? If having making lots and lots of money screws up your kids, why do people continue to make lots and lots of money? Right? That's the simplest version of that. No, I mean that very, very seriously. But you know the answer to that question. I don't know the answer to that question because I don't believe that people... I honestly believe that 95% of people who pursue wealth on some level do so because they believe they are doing something positive for their families. I honestly believe there is no more powerful human motivation than that. Um, And everything else they say is garbage. It's not the real reason. They don't actually want the 15,000 or not 25,000 square foot mansion in the Hamptons. No, no. They, what they really want to do is they want to provide, they, they want to make their family as healthy and happy as they could possibly be. And yet, everything we know about that says you're not doing it, right? You're, you're, and every, you know, it's really fascinating. I thought about this. I got this notion when I was doing my book, Outliers. And I had the chapter, for those of you who read the book, I have a whole chapter about Jewish lawyers, right? Why did you know, in New York City, Jews began 50, 70 years, no, 50 years ago. They were on the complete outside of the legal profession. They, had, they, were, they were completely marginalized after the second, uh, through the end of the Second World War. And in the space of a generation, they rise to the top of the legal profession. It's an incredibly interesting story, right? So I would talk to all of these um, uh, guys in their 70s, essentially. And they all had the same, all had exactly the same background. They grew up in the Bronx and Brooklyn. Their parents were in the garment industry, and they went to City College, right, and NYU Law. When NYU was a commuter school, right, it was a lousy school, and they would always so that was their background. And then they would always talk about how important it was that their kids go to Harvard, right, or Yale or whatever. And I would always think, but wait a minute, you didn't go, and you're the most powerful lawyer in New York. And everything you told me suggests that the lessons you learned by starting on the outside were why you made it to where you are today. So why are you undercutting your kids' chance to make it by sending them to some fancy school? Why aren't you sending them to Fordham, right? Or some, you know, it, and it, the, none of them could grasp the contradiction between their own personal biography 
and their children's biography. But, I mean, the things you say make sense, but the message of our society every day mm -hmm. and, is success equals money, Harvard, all of those things. And I find a lot in your books that it's like, it seems so obvious, why don't people do it? I mean, when you found, for instance, that if we're looking at why Asian kids do better, mm -hmm. it's because they're in school more, they're studying more. Yeah. But Every, you know, millions of people have read your book and we haven't changed our system. We still have a three-month summer. I mean, do you ever sort of feel like saying, why doesn't anyone actually put any of this into action? Maybe you can't stop making money. That's going to be the hardest for, to make billionaires stop wanting to be billionaires. But, yeah. Or the, the thing with the uh, hockey team. Why don't they split, split those teams? If you can explain that a little bit. I mean, you, maybe you're not trying to be prescriptive, but people could take these findings of yours as a recipe for success, as a recipe to, to unpack why something's not working and mm. make it better? Well, you know, I do, I, 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 I do think we heed these um, lessons. I do think um, our, you know, like I, in Outliers, when I talk about the KIPP schools, um, they are the embodiment of a notion that there is no shortcut to Success if you are disadvantaged. You just have to outwork those ahead of you. Um, that's that idea. They've had that idea is, is um, you know, they, they, they've been working on that idea for 15 years with clear success. And their model has spread across the United States, and countless uh, disadvantaged kids have been helped by that idea. Um, you know, the refusal to pretend there's some magic wand you can wave or some magic curriculum or some website they can go to and learn, you know, all of these things. They just have said, you just have to, you know, so I do think, I don't think these are, these notions are, and I think lots and lots and lots of, of parents in affluent areas. Um, one of the things that struck me, I, I got so fascinated on this wealthy parent thing, just as, I mean, it's not a big part of the book, but I, it was so fascinating. I ended up, you know how you get carried away by something. So you end up doing like 20 interviews when two would have done. So I just started interviewing parent after wealthy parent after wealthy parent. And it, none of them didn't think about this. They all, at some, it, the, the only question is when did it occur to them that they were... Um, Screwing up their kids. Or, and I was also stunned, not stunned, but also it was fascinating to see how many parents um, who, were, who weren't there yet were already conscious of... Um, of the danger, who could see this dramatic difference between the way, the way they grew up and the things they knew were constituent of their own success, and how those same factors were absent from their ch children's lives, and that that worried them. Um, you mentioned um, self-made, and yeah. that is such a, a interesting theme in Outliers that you sort of debunk the idea of the self-made man woman. Yeah, can you just address a little bit why? You say people don't rise from nothing; they don't succeed on their own. What do you really mean by that? Uh, well, nobody ever does. I mean, the the other thing that you learn from there's an awful lot of myth making that attends to. Actually, let me back up. There's a really fascinating thing that was written uh, by this Italian sociologist who came to America and who sat down with people who were involved in the civil rights movement. And she, 30 years after the fact, and she just had them relate their stories 
of their experiences in the civil rights movement. And then she took their stories and she fact-checked them. Right? Now, she wasn't really interested in the civil rights movement, per se. She was interested in the kinds of stories people tell after the fact. And what she discovered was almost all the stories she heard from people who were involved in the civil rights movement, which for them was, in many cases, the crowning moment of their life, the most exciting, purposeful, fulfilling thing they have ever done. What she discovered was almost all the stories were, um, not false is way too strong a word, were, uh, had been altered in the same way. And that is that they had um, edited out the role of not just other people, but of institutions. So if they worked with you know, SNCC in Birmingham in 63, SNCC was no longer part of it. It was them and this other person. They did this together. The whole notion of an institutional apparatus behind them just got forgotten. Right? Not maliciously or deliberately, or, but that's just the way our memory works, that we personalize things. And their role was put in the foreground. And the kind of structure that made what they did possible was put in the background. But of course, when you actually read actual histories of the civil rights movement, um, and this is a thing that gets forgotten so often, that you realize that you know, King and Wyatt Walker and all those guys who were running it were first and foremost masters of organization building, right? They were the most brilliant organizational builders that we have seen in a long time. They built these armies with clear lines of responsibility and you know everything was planned down to a T and nothing happened by accident. And so it was the most kind of, it was you know the most structured, regimented, organized, uh, you know, and all of that gets forgotten. Thirty years later, you're, it's like this heroic, romantic thing where a bunch of us decided that we were going to, that guy, Bull Connor, had gone on long enough. And so me and my friend, you know, I mean, I'm exaggerating, but it's that kind of thing that takes over. And I think that happens a lot with successful people, is that their stories get edited. And um, they start to leave out all of these breaks and institutional interventions and they leave out the fact that they were, you know, part of some lucky generation, or that this, you know, Bill Gates was. Although know. Bill Gates is, an, is actually a is a, a wonderful and heartwarming exception to this because he has is now incredibly um, humble about his success. I guess if you have forty billion, maybe the. <laughs> talking about curves, that the curve comes back around and, you know, it's very, very easy to be, you know, yes, of course. I mean, only 25 billion of my fortune can really be put down to my own skill. I, I think 15, <laughs> at least 15 of it is is nothing to do with me. Um, but uh, no, no, his I, circumstances <laughs> were... No, he's very open about, um, but he's, un, I think he's unusual. I think most of us, you know, look, I mean, I do it when I think about my uh, I was a big runner as a kid, and I, you know, endlessly romanticized my running days. And when I think about the stories I tell about my running, it's all about me, 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 me. Then I did this. I never talk about my coach. That's outrageous. I mean, here was this coach who no one paid a, him a dime. He would come out. He spent hours and hours with me working. You know, I never mention him. I mean, it's it's astonishing to think about how deeply. Um, uh, what's the word I want to use? Um, self, selfish. 
Someone said, yes, how incredibly selfish our narratives are about our, um, so our, our um, how uh, solipsistic our narratives are about our uh, childhood. When you think about your own childhood mm -hmm. and all, all of the circumstances, whether, you know, Bill Gates lived next to, you talk about, lived next to the University of which, what, Washington, mm -hmm. what were the circumstances around you that, if you look back, were the building blocks and or decisive in terms of your trajectory? Yeah. And if you could just talk a little bit about your mo your mother and father, who yeah. you very specifically, you don't just generally thank them, but you sort of see where they gave you something very specific. Yeah. Um, well, my father, I always end up talking about my mother, and I always feel guilty because I leave out my father. Um, my father is a uh, someone with a the most wide open mind. So my father marries a white man, whereas my mother, a black woman in England in 1950-something, at a time when, and then they come to America at a time when, you know, there's still miscegenation laws on the books in some American states. It's quite a radical act for a white man to marry a black woman in the 50s in England. Um, but it did not appear to, to my father, he never for a moment thought this was a radical act. Um, he's that both, combination of both sort of clueless and um, just completely kind of radically open-minded. Like it didn't even occur to him to worry about it. He liked her. And so, in fact, I have to, can I digress by telling my favorite dad story? For a change. My, <laughs> my dad, then they then moved to Jamaica. My father is teaching at the University of West Indies and it's 1962. And he's writing some paper and he needs to get access to some He's a mathematician to some math book. And this is in the eight days before online stuff. So the closest place he can find this textbook he needs is the University, uh, Georgia Tech in Atlanta. So he writes Georgia Tech and says, my name is Graham Glabel. I teach at the University of West Indies. I would like access to your library. Because he has a friend who's at Georgia Tech. A friend says, who he's never met, but they've corresponded. He says, sure, show up. What he does not realize is that the minute that request is granted, Georgia Tech goes into this frenzy that goes all the way to the president of the university because they've invited someone from the University of West Indies to come and use their facilities. And they don't know whether he's white or black, right? They don't know who he is. He teaches in Jamaica. This is a, in the heart of Georgia in 63, a segregated institution. They could have some black guy walking around their library, right? So that they go into complete panic and they start phoning frantically to try and find, of course my father's in, you can't get him on the phone, it's 1963 in Jamaica, you, know, you can't phone somebody. They phone his, they try to get in touch with people in England and they can, they try and get yearbooks of like his grad, <laughs> to see his picture. Finally, the day before he, he arrives, they get him, track him down somehow and this guy says, uh, uh, Professor Blabble, says yes, I have a question to ask you, he goes yes. Are you black? My father says, no. And the guy goes, oh, thank God. <laughs> and then, so then the kicker is, my father realizing, he says, oh my goodness, then gets a picture of my, father, of my mother, huge picture, comes to Atlanta, is greeted with open arms, goes to dinner you know, with all the folks in the math department, and takes out the picture of my mother and says, you guys, think I just got married. I'd love you to see a picture of my wife. Hands her around and forces them all to look at this black woman. So great. Anyway, that's very typical of my father. Um, having, 
he is, and that's a very, um, if you're a kid and your father is kind of socially fearless in that way, um, his friends, my father doesn't, he never, he always had inappropriate friends. Like he, when I say inappropriate, I don't mean formally inappropriate, but he would be like best buds with like the Mennonite farmer next door who left school in the sixth grade. And my father's like a PhD and they'd have long conversations. And, or he would go, you take him to a party and he, he wouldn't ever talk to the person you thought he was supposed to, you know, he'd end up chatting with, or I would, he'd go to my track meets and he would always forget to watch my race. And instead, I'd be running around the track and I'd look, where's my father? And I would see him raking the long jump pit in the infield. <laughs> so it's like, there's something really kind of, I initially was kind of stunned by that, but then I thought that's actually really cool because he'd sort of, you know, because it's sort of, at the time, and I still kind of feel like it's kind of weird if your parents come to your track meet and they're completely focused on you. You're like, you know, give me some distance. So I liked the fact that he was, anyway, that was my father. And that's very, that it sort of freed me up to kind of. Before we get your mom, did yeah. you absorb that, that attitude towards race from him? Did you feel like it really wasn't playing a role in your yeah, consciousness? I, never, I didn't, I was not aware of being, of race at all until I came to the United States in my 20s. I just never thought about it, ever thought about it. Um, never came up. I mean, we were living in a really wonderful part of Canada um, where no one ever, in a Mennonite area of Canada where um, it just wasn't an issue. Um, no one, so I just never, it didn't even, I knew. But when you got here? Well, I moved to Washington DC when I came to America for the first time where it, these issues are impossible to dodge. And then I got a job at the Washington Post where all of a sudden I was like a black guy. And they were so happy to be employing me. And like, and I was like so flabbergasted. And then the first time, this is a story I shouldn't be repeating, but I was so totally fascinated and bemused at the same time at how, how much race mattered and how kind of, how much of a coup it was to have someone working for them who they could check the box, right? It's just so really weird to me. So what I used to do, my mother would come and visit and I would take her to the, I'd always have her to drop in on the editor. I just sort of see, kind of see what his reaction was. It just like was so, cause I never got past this kind of, the bizarreness of American obsession with race never, has never ceased to amaze me. Like, um, anyway, so uh, no, I didn't, it wasn't until I came here that I, that I, um, yeah. Um, so your mom, you said that she taught you how to express yourself. Yeah, my mother is a, is very, uh, my mother is the most articulate person that I've ever met. Um, and uh, and sp from the very, very, and writes, writes and speaks very, very clearly and simply. Um, and she, I have always tried to write like my mother. Um, is never, she's always, she's always been a kind of, um, role model. Um, my father, by the way, completely, almost hilariously inarticulate. Um, cannot even, can't get a sentence out to save his life. It's kind of fascinating to see them have an argument, for example, like they can't actually argue because he can't express the thought to disagree with her. So they, there's all these sort of failed confrontations between them that sort of end bizarrely happily. That Is it true that you actually stopped going to school for a while? And your mom was... Yeah, my of... mother... Uh, I The thing is, 
we were we were sort of I, I say that I had a friend. I had another lucky thing about my childhood is that my I grew up in this tiny little farming Mennonite town in the middle of nowhere. And my two best friends growing up were this guy named Bruce and a guy named Terry. <clears throat> Bruce is today the media editor of the New York Times. Terry is a was one of the youngest tenured professors at Harvard University, I'm sorry to say. Um, so I was in this bizarre situation of being in, I went to a high school where about 10 people from my high school would go to college every year. It so happened that two of those 10 were these two, right? I, so it's this weird combination of both, I had the, both the most unbelievably sophisticated peer group in the most unbelievably unsophisticated environment. Um, so Terry and I, Terry is a total brilliant guy. We lost interest in going to school when we were in high school. And, but not because we were opposed to school, but because we were really in favor of it. Our whole idea was we can actually do more work if we just stay home. So Terry's mother, who was even more kind of laissez-faire and progressive. In fact, Terry's mother and my mother had a kind of rivalry going on. They both got, went back to school and got their masters in social work and then they founded this counseling center together and then they competed to be the more enlightened kind of 70s parent and so each would they would sort of terry's mother would say i don't care what whether you know terry goes to school my mother said i don't care whether malcolm and terry go to school and like <laughs> they would try and trump each other with their sort of so then my mother's power move was she finally she wrote a series of undated notes, like a whole stack, saying Malcolm is to be excused from school. And she would let me fill in both the date at the top and also the dates when I was supposed to be excused from school. So if it ever came up, I'd just hand over the... And then they got really interested. Terry and I devised this. We were very competitive. And, but we, weren't, we didn't want to compete just on our a average in school. We devised this number, and I forgot what we called it, which was that you would multiply your average times your number of recorded absences. And that number was the number that was the one we cared about. And so we were trapped in our senior year in high school in this maniacal competition to see who could simultaneously not go to school the most and have the highest, because um, it was that. And of course, the, the number of absences is more powerful than your great, because you know, we might have a 90 average, but you can have up to 200 absences, oh. right? So there's more upside in the, in the absences. So by the end of school, it was just sort of crazy. We're trying to do it all from, um, from far. I would love to thank all of you for coming and end on a quote from one of the two friends that Malcolm mentioned, Bruce, um, and he said this in the press, so. I hope it's okay to read it. I've known Malcolm 39 years, but I couldn't tell you what his deep-seated anxieties are. I know he cries at Puff the Magic Dragon. He's dated a lot of women. He loves other people's children, but he has work to do. For Malcolm to sit down and work for five hours solid and then make himself a cup of tea, that makes him the happiest man in the world. So thank you. That was Malcolm Gladwell talking to Abigail Pogerman. Our podcasts are produced by Megan Whitman and me, Eric Winnick. Our editor is Matt Temkin. Our music was written and performed by Peril Wolf. The voice of Zabars is Leah Rosensweet. Please give us a rating and review on iTunes, and if you can, share this episode with your friends. 
If you're just joining us, welcome, and be sure to subscribe for future episodes.